Yeah, we're in English because sort of like um, my career, if I may call it that, um, you know, is based on, you know, making music and art for the uh, English speaking countries. <laughs> yeah. And my career, if you can call it that, <laughs> what's left of it <laughs> is also in English. <laughs> yeah. Yes, 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 yes. But but you do speak German. Yeah. Yeah. I speak German. The trouble is, I mean, I came to Germany in 94 and I'd had about a month of lessons when I realized I was going to be moving to Germany. It was absolutely, I mean, I don't know, it was so futile. You can imagine it. You know, I had this paid for by MTV, I'd like to say, who didn't know mm -hmm. I was leaving. So, so this guy called Stefan, a really great guy who was teaching me German, I could tell he was extremely frustrated because, you know, I was probably the worst student he'd ever had. And also because I was so busy at the time, it was, you know, hardly possible really to do even one or two hours German a day. And then, um, yeah, when I came to Germany, obviously I was thrown in to the deep end immediately. Actually, something like four days after I started, after only being able to say Scheiße, I think that was really probably the only word that I really could say. I I had to go to Dusseldorf to this, I don't know, in this hotel was some sort of event. And I was on stage and asked to speak and I spoke English. And this guy kept shouting out, speaking German, you live in Germany. And I, and I just went, I've been here four fucking days. You know, like, <laughs> give me a break. <laughs> so, um, uh, and then at Viva, of I mean, it was really difficult. And basically, it wasn't until two years in after I'd been fired from Viva and my whole life changed. Um, and I started to make real friends in Germany, friends that would stay around for a long time. Mm. Um, then the whole thing changed again. And I started uh, to go to German lessons and uh, I started to pick up German and um, yeah, and then it changed again when I went back to university in 2006 and I studied screenwriting. Um, I went back to the UK uh, on and off for a year to do this master's course. And eventually when I came back, I mean, I had a flat here and I was coming backwards and forwards. But eventually when I came back and I really started writing, um, I realized that when I wrote in English, I was writing like a German wrote English. <laughs> So I could, because so, at that point, I could neither speak German or English, <laughs> and certainly couldn't write either. So um, I made a conscious decision in the last few years, because I really concentrated on screenwriting, in the last few years to live as much as possible in English, but with my German friends who I met in German, there's some I met in English, as it were, but the ones mm -hmm. that I met in German, I speak German to. The ones I met in English, I speak English to. And a lot of communication I do in English because I just have to, because otherwise uh, my writing, and I've had this, I've actually had this in meetings with, with uh, Americans where they, they, you know, they ask me, um, oh, you're, you know, your English is really good for a German. <laughs> 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 and then it gets really embarrassing. So uh so I sort of I've sort of concentrated on that. And because I'm literally I live in this bubble world of Zoom <laughs> that yeah. basically is my world these days. Um that I don't feel that I need to I'm not I'm not going on stage and I'm not doing interviews in German and I'm not really doing a lot of appearances 
if any. Um, so for me, it's quite comforting that I can speak German when I want to pretty badly and English uh, I have to also pretty badly still. <laughs> has, has speaking German uh, changed you? Um, well, I think Germany changed me. I mean, okay. I think that's the, the the real point. It's when you move to another country, you have a long, hard look at yourself in the mirror. And it's because there are differences between um, your home country and the country that you move to, you suddenly get a reflection of yourself. And there were quite a few things I didn't like about myself. Not that I'm some sort of perfect individual today, but there were certain things that I didn't like about myself. And I thought that it was a very powerful experience and uh, it changed me. And And I think because the German language is quite direct that I started to adopt that direct manner when I go to England. So, you know, like when the coffee comes and in England, it's always more in the saucer than in the cup and I'm sending it back. Or if I get food, I don't like, I'm sending it back and everyone hates me. Or, mm -hmm. you know, um, I don't know. There are just certain aspects which are very different in the directness. I remember going to a supermarket one day and, and the, the woman behind the till just said to me, you've got fat. <laughs> and it was like, hang on a minute, I don't know you. And I, and I felt like saying, you've always been fat, you know, like, but I held, my Englishness held me back. But somehow in, in Germany, there is a much more directness. And when you get used to it, you sort of love it. But it is the country where I felt I changed in a way that I'm happy with. And mm. so for me, that was a very, very important change. And I think it is something to do with the language, but it's more to do with the whole culture. Yeah. You know, I, I used to live in uh, in Austria. I was there for 10 years. And even though you would assume they speak German, you know, or some kind of German, but it's completely different. Like you say, like they are never direct. Like you're not you're not allowed to say no. You You say something durch die Blume. You know, so yeah, you yeah. well, that, that's a little bit English, isn't it? That's a little it bit is. English as well. You don't say, and also, I remember, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I mean, obviously, sex and sexuality has changed over the years completely. But, um, you know, if you said to someone, Oh, would you like to come back to mine for a coffee? It didn't mean for a coffee, you know what I mean? It was like there was nothing mm. said directly. And I remember being in a German nightclub in about 94, and this guy get, came up to me and said, You want to come home for a fuck? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, like it was. And I thought, God, what, what, this is really weird. This is too much. It's the, <laughs> so it's, the... <laughs> it's <laughs> the directness. Sometimes I don't know whether it's a change in uh, societal change uh, mm -hmm. as well, but I do think uh, Germans say it like they mean it, and they mean it. And <laughs> uh, and when you get used to that, it's really good. I mean, look at Brexit. I think it's the greatest example of British people not understanding German mentality at all. When Angela mm -hmm. Merkel said, you know, we don't compromise on this, this and this, and the British were going, well, what about this? You know, what about let's we could compromise. And it's like, no, hang on a minute. She said no, she means no, and she won't change her mind. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And the and yeah. British perspective is very different. And so those two parts of the culture don't really understand each other, I'd say. But when you've lived in a country a long time, then you get used to it, you understand it, and you need to speak the language to be in the culture. If you don't speak it, 
you're never actually going to get into the culture and meet people. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I live in Prenzlauer Berg here in Berlin, and there are a lot of people here that don't speak German. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't mind it, but I'm wondering like what they're missing out, you know? Well, I never understand it in Berlin when people, you go to a cafe and they're either British or American who are serving you and no one speaks German and it just feels very, it does feel very odd to be honest but you know I mean I, I don't mind it's like it's fine for me but the um I understand that totally I think there are just pockets of society uh which congregate um and I made a conscious decision when I came here that I would not be friends with any English people or any Americans And mm -hmm. basically, I mean, I can't say totally, but I don't have any sort of friends at the moment that are English or American. But I don't, I consciously do not mix with English people or Americans. Or I didn't for a long time because I felt if I did that, I would never speak German and I'd be resistant to understanding or being part of the culture. And I mm -hmm. think that was a really good decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So before you actually came over to Germany, um, did you have any, what was your, what was your, if you had any opinion about Germany? Well, I had lots of friends here because mm -hmm. of MTV, basically. I mean, I mm -hmm. must admit, in my youth, uh, the first country that I visited uh, from university was Germany. You know, I got a train over mm -hmm. to Cologne. It was actually Cologne. Um, and a friend of mine was a presenter on BFBS or radio host on BFBS. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, she actually worked close with uh, uh, Tommy Vance in London. And uh, we used to hang out with him. who's was like this rock journalist. I don't know. He's very famous in England, in, you know, in that period in the 80s. And um, so anyhow, I came over to visit her and hung out with her and... Um, The FBS was somewhere near Cologne, and I can't even remember where it was. That's the mm -hmm. weird thing. And mm -hmm. so I came over here, and Cologne was the first city I came to. And when I worked for MTV, obviously Germany was an enormous territory for MTV, and the most important territory, I would say. And so we would come over here a lot to either interview artists or, or I don't know, do features or whatever. And um, I also then got hooked on The Omen and Dorian Gray in Frankfurt. And I spent about a year every weekend on a plane going over and getting shit-faced in, in those clubs <laughs> and going completely nuts, mm -hmm. which I can talk about now because it's so long in the past. And mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm such a healthy individual today. <laughs> I have nothing to do with anything from the past in that way. Uh, but mm -hmm. I used to go there and just go absolutely mad and just hang out with uh, Mark Spoon, um, you know, who passed Sven Fate. Uh, Matthias Martinson, who ran Logic Records, was a friend of mine, and he was part owner of the uh, Omen with uh, Michael Munzing and Sven. And um, so it used to start. We used to, I used to land at the airport. Matthias would pick me up, and then it starts slowly. So we'd go for dinner, you know, have some nice dinner somewhere, and then sidle into the Omen. And then it, sometimes it would be basically the whole weekend – Or if, I don't know, actually, I do think I had a break at one point, but it was basically the whole weekend. You know, I was in the Omen once. I think it was 26 hours, literally in a <laughs> nightclub for 26 hours in one <laughs> go. I mean, it's insane, really. If I think about it today, you know, I can't, <laughs> couldn't manage one hour, probably. I don't know. But uh, 
anyhow, it was fun to do. And I, you know, I did it. And in essence, I, I feel I can look back and say, well, in a way I got away with it because now I, you know, now I'm very healthy and uh, look after myself and I don't regret any of that. It's just something that I did when I was young. And so that means that it was kind of like uh, the relationship you had with Germany kind of grew from that initial seed yes. of, of going to Absolutely. Cologne. It felt yeah. like a natural decision. And I really mm. liked uh, coming here. I mean, I just really... Uh, like the people well the people i knew you only know the people you know obviously but the people i knew were really nice and really open um i liked uh what i what i felt then what i knew of the german mentality i liked it and i do feel that uh germans are much more modern and forward thinking than british people and it's a little bit of a cliche but there mm. is a massive grouping of british people who are mainly old and white like myself, <laughs> who are living a little bit in the past, but they live in the past. You know what I mean? They can live in the past. And that is why, you know, that's why Brexit came about, essentially, in any case. Um, but I think, the, you know, there's a whole grouping, obviously, and there was in my era of people who are also forward-looking. So it was really nice to come here, and I really enjoyed it, and I like the people, and I like the openness, and um, it seemed like a natural change of life i mean there was another factor in the decision to leave and that was i felt and this is an odd thing to say but i felt being on camera was ruining my life mm -hmm. you know i look at fame as a disease mm -hmm. i think it's it should be uh seen as an illness um mm -hmm. and it you know it gives if if you're you know my fame was minor but if you get famous in some way um that you it's like a drug you get this rush and you constantly need more and it's like an attention deficit and you'll find that most famous or successful people in the world um have something lacking in their childhood that has led to this thing because it's like a compensation from what you didn't have you know i didn't have uh a father that really had any, gave me any attention. He actually didn't want a third child, had nothing to do with me. Um, and I think I sought out love from the whole world, as it were, by being on TV or the world of TV um, to compensate the fact that I didn't get love from my father. So I think there's always a reason behind people why they search for fame. And then you've got to go. The truth is what you've got to do is you've got to deal with it. And I've dealt with it since then in therapy and feel completely different about it um and for me it's just something you see it you you know why do people go on on those reality shows why do people are so desperate to be on television i mean there are certain things that are really horrendous i think on tv there's some things that you can do that are okay um and they earn you money and it's fine but i think that absolute obsession and need to get attention is really dangerous. And so for me, I feel like I've left that behind and then the phone's going to ring and they're going to say, do you want to be on so-and-so? And I'd probably say yes. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I probably would. But the thing is, I, the, I do think once you feel that it's doing you no good and it's becoming some form of driving force in your life, it's very unhealthy and it shouldn't be. You have to find something, I think, that's 
more creatively worthwhile or mm-hmm. um i don't know socially worthwhile or love or whatever and uh fame can't be the end all and be all in life and i think for a lot of people it is wow well i think yeah, heavy start, on, heavy on, start. We're on, no we're only like 10 minutes in and i'm, I'm <laughs> very happy that you're this direct and you're putting this on the table right away it's kind that, of like my that's why know, i don't I'm, do interviews <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm totally, I'm totally with you with this. And you know what? Even though I don't have fame, but I experience that kind of thing, even on like a different, different levels, where where it's about just being on the road and playing every night. And like, it took me a while to understand that like the hormonal balance changes just being on stage, like focusing so hard, you know, on playing the right notes and stuff. And, and, you know, like presenting something, being calm while everybody else is excited. Right. And, and somehow it took, it, it still takes me a long time. I just returned from a five week tour and I'm three weeks home now. And I'm still like totally feeling the um, withdrawal. Of well, that, it changes of your hormone, rhythms. Of that hormone. Yeah. And you, you know, it's, Sorry. No, I think you've got it completely. I mean, that that is it. It changes uh, your the functions of your body. And um, I mean, I when I work for MTV, I can't remember really a weekend where I was in Britain. There wasn't a weekend. I was on two or three planes a week. I was just flying around Europe, mm-hmm. interviewing people or interviewing people in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and my whole life was a constant rush. Now, Obviously, hey, why, let me ask a super question. Why, why do you think was it that you were so popular as a presenter? Oh, well, I, this is sort of, um, I mean, I have a great story to do with this, but I'll tell you in a yeah. second. But the, I, yeah. I, Ray Cox was the most popular presenter on MTV. He had an entertainment yeah. show and I would go home and watch it. And uh, I loved Ray in that, that period. I thought that was a, uh, uh, it fitted and it was a, a really great show. And he is a very, very talented presenter. Now, I'm not, and I mean this sincerely, I'm not a talented mm-hmm. presenter and I'm not a usual presenter in any way because I'm just me. <laughs> you know, I don't really, uh, I mean, all I did was read an autocue. I mean, this is, you know, I wrote the autocue because it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was facts about pop stars or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But all I did was, um, read it and i don't see that i had any great talent i mean i had imposter syndrome there's no doubt about it i didn't see that i had any great talent um i didn't think i was successful and um and in fact um mtv in the first period of mtv they tried to fire me about 10 times for being gay and they had a meeting before mtv started where i was called into because i'd already said to my boss that i'm gay as we went out for lunch and then I got called into this meeting and the meeting was can you be gay on MTV and I was thinking well you know it's not really my choice I just am Um, Mm -hmm. and I think I said something like well I think that's God's decision not mine although I don't believe in God but I think I said something like that and then the press officer who was an Austrian woman called Christine Gorham married to Scott Gorham uh, of Thin Lizzy and um she piped up because she could see this meeting was going in the wrong direction with these Americans. She said, everyone in Europe on television is gay. Terrible Austrian accent, but there we go. Um, everyone on television in Europe is gay. And the, the Americans just went, really? 
And she said, yes. And they went, oh, okay. And I kept my job. But then every time this reared its head, uh, they were really furious about it. And uh, it was a really difficult process. Then eventually there was a meeting in Amsterdam of the heads of MTV America, met up with the heads of MTV Europe to discuss the channel one weekend. And when they came back from that meeting, and they didn't have any ratings at that time, when they came back from that meeting, they pulled me into the office and I thought I was going to be fired because I knew it happened. And they said to me, oh, you're really popular. And I said, all oh, right, okay, how do you know that? And this is this is great on so many levels um, because they'd gone to a restaurant after this big meeting about where the channel should go and which presenters would stay and which would be moved or pushed out. And um, they went to this Brazilian restaurant and the waiter uh, overheard they were from MTV and he asked them and they said yes. And then they said, what presenter do you like? And he said, Steve Blame, he's my favourite. Now, a week after that, I went to Holland and I slept with my erstwhile boyfriend, who was that waiter. <laughs> and he told me. So so there is a god, and it's a god of gay karma. Who then, who, I just think, I mean, it's so mad. So I survived because someone I slept with, thank God, I obviously am reasonably okay in bed <laughs> no. so anyhow someone i slept with um said that they liked me and that was the reason um that i survived and then of course the world changed you know this got into the early 90s uh and um and then they came to me in 92 and said we want you to present a gay music show and i said oh, no, fuck off uh, i said what's gay music am i going to play i will survive for like 20 hours what am i going to do i mean it would be different today because it's you know there's much more identity politics and it, and it would make a sort of great idea but back then it made no sense at all and also for me music is music i don't give a shit who makes it in that sense it really is a about whether you know you appreciate the music or you don't appreciate the music and the idea of playing some sort of 70s gay disco would horrify me. So I said, no, I'm not doing that. And it ghettoizes stuff, you know? Yeah. And I hate yeah. ghettoization in, in, in every way. We all live in this world and somehow we all have to get on. I mean, I sound like a five-year-old child when I say that, but it's true. I think that's the <laughs> only, only things to say. Yeah. So that's my, uh, um, story about that and i can't remember your exact question <laughs> the, the question was if you if there was a moment when you realized that you were popular and as you were saying you were like jet, the jet well, set of going to interviews every weekend and no i don't know i mean popular no but you know being recognized and being popular are two different things mm -hmm. um and there was definitely a a, a lot of moments of recognition which were quite extreme and i think one of the most um, extreme ones for me was in Sweden. And I went out to a nightclub with the producer and it was the opening night of this nightclub. And there were about 400 people waiting to get in. And they parted like for Moses, you know, like this whole crowd, like they saw us and then suddenly they went quiet and parted. And I was going <laughs> like, what's going on here? What's going on here? And we got into this club and it was packed and they left a semicircle with quite a large area around us and just stood and watched. 
And it was incredibly uncomfortable until the moment where I just went sort of, come here. And then it went a bit mad. Um, and I think there were so many situations where it was, for me, um, abnormal. But at the same time, I think I, you know, this is back to the fame aspect. I think I liked being stroked. I think mm -hmm. I liked the fact that people recognize me. And I mean, they were always nice to me. No one was really ever mean to me. I can't remember anything like that. So basically, I, you know, I just had a good time. And to be honest, you know, you, you know, at that period of my life, it was like, right, free drinks, free drugs, you know, let's go mad. <laughs> and um, I did. <laughs> so how did you <clears throat> end up presenting for MTV? What was, what happened before that? How old were um, you when that, when, when you. Well, I was old, you know, for, in comparison for a, sort of a career start today, I was 27 when I started MTV. Mm -hmm. um, but I had studied mathematics and physics at university. Mm -hmm. um, and then after university, I'd got this job in this horrendous town called Peterborough in uh, where Andy Bell comes from, from Malaysia. It's always I can identify who comes from these towns mm -hmm. and uh, who's a nice guy, by the way. And um, I went to this town. This town was horrendous. And I sold telephone systems, you know, in the days where a telephone system would be a massive piece of equipment which would have its special room and you would have, a, you know, an operator and God knows what to work the telephone system of 400 phones in a, in a building. And I didn't sell one because I'm useless at selling. And um, I spent all my weekends going to London and going to clubs. And, and I was diving more and more into the subculture in London. And eventually I had to leave this job. I remember when John Lennon died, I was actually in, in Peterborough. And um, I bought um, Walking on Thin Ice, which, you know, which Ono had recorded the night he died. And her wailing on it is very painful. And um, I played that endlessly in Peterborough. And that sort of summed up my life in Peterborough. I felt like Yoko Ono, I think, mm -hmm. where I was actually dying in this town. And um, so I moved back to my mum's and then within weeks I moved up to London and my life um, complete, completely changed. But basically because I moved into the club culture and hung out with what were then um, the end of the new romantic era, I would, would say. And, and so these were like these really, you know, fashionistas um in london who were doing interesting things and i was sort of on the outside of that but also dipping into it and um and i think from then uh it got me into the idea of um not being on tv but doing something in in media and i went on a three-month journalism course um, where they said to me immediately, you should be a radio presenter. So obviously they took one look at my face and said, no TV for you. <laughs> and um, I did this course and had to start interviewing people, um, which was fun. I loved interviewing people. And I got hooked on it. And so after that, I worked for various publications, you know, like those free magazines in London, 
or oh god there was other things like blitz there were there were like magazines that i got the occasional article in and also on radio but basically i would do one thing and no one would want me again i mean i was like one of those people who fall upwards so i failed at something uh, but just kept going and nice. every failure was almost used to get the next job um because you don't tell anyone it's it's a failure i suppose you just go in and say well i did work for so and so and i have done this and then you get another job and i just kept going and i've got this i still have it i have this absolute amazing willpower to um achieve something and to do something and uh that's still with me that will never go and the weird thing is a friend of mine at that time phoned me up and said mtv's coming to europe and i asked him what's mtv i mean i had no mm -hmm. idea Mm -hmm. and um he told me what it was and he said listen i think you'd be perfect so i filled in an application i wrote to them you know there's all these specifics you had to to send to them and they interviewed me as a researcher and when i went to the interview i had this amazingly baggy trousers with um what are they called uh <laughs> you know those things that hold up your trousers yeah, yeah they only the only the only reason were the trousers are so old they'd gone completely out of shape and I and I couldn't afford to buy a new pair so I basically went with these clothes that I wore day and night and at that point I was washing up in a restaurant and um they gave me a screen test and this in during the screen test I had to present a minute on pop culture and I'd taken all these hats and I had the the producer throw a hat at me and I'd put it on and go this is a curiosity killed the cat I said uh, instead of cat and I flummoxed but I laughed and I carried on and in between they kept filming in between the takes of doing different things they filmed they told us that camera they said okay camera off but they they kept filming and in between the takes there was a table in the room and I would clean the table and dance around it and sing and and I think that's what well, they told me that's why I got the job because mm -hmm. they saw um me on camera which wasn't perfect obviously in any way but they saw my true personality um and they thought i was very eccentric and as americans americans always think that british people are eccentric in any case and they thought i was i think they thought i was wildly eccentric and that's why they gave me the job so when i started at mtv i had no experience in front of a camera at all um and i think they had employed me really on the false basis that I'm some sort of nutter. <laughs> Were you, uh, are you an improviser? Would you say you're an improviser? Uh, no, it depends. Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, if you look at any interview I have to lead, um, I'm obsessively doing research and obsessively trying to find the right questions. And um, I want, to get something new out of someone and do something. I mean, this is different to back then. Back then, you know, you have to remember MTV, I would interview sometimes 10 people in a day. There's no way I could have done extensive research on any of them. I used to have to, if it was a massive star, I would get a bit more time. But if it was someone who just released a record and were fairly new, then it was gonna only be about that record. So you, you didn't have to do a lot of research. But today uh, I am, I wouldn't say a complete perfectionist, but I am heading that way, really. I like to 
I like to challenge myself and I like things to be good. Um, so, for example, if I present a show, which doesn't happen very often, but if the organization is very disorganized, I can't stand it. You know, I mean, I don't go bananas, but I can't actually stand it. I can't understand why things don't work because I know what my job is. And I always feel, well, you should know what your job is and you should do it. You know what I mean? So yeah. to that extent, yeah, I, 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 uh, I don't just let things roll. I have to do things well. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it feels like you're, you're very spontaneous and uh, a storyteller and um, you know how to respond even to, you know, not just to words, but to, you know, like my face or whatever, or your, you know, interviews face. And uh, oh, but and I, that's I'm so that, used that's, to doing that. Yeah, that that's kind of like I mean I don't remember much, but I was like in my mid-teens when MTV Europe started, I guess. Um, but that was sort of like always the the vibe that there was something that kind of like went beyond the word, you know, like a vibe. Well, I, I, when I came to Germany and I uh, a friend of mine who actually lived opposite me in in Cologne at that point. And um, he called me Valiant Man. He said all his friends used to call me Valiant Man because I, I was so laid back. But they obviously didn't know me in normal life because, you know, I'm hardly that at all. But what you say about, you know, it's, it's very important to mirror people in an interview. I know that it's not something that you can do consciously. But, you know, if they're enjoying the interview and they're, you know, they're laughing, you've, you've got to join in. There is ludicrous if you don't, and you'll get much more out of them. And if they're very serious, you know, you're not going to go, oh, <laughs> otherwise you'd ruin the moment. Um, so basically, I think, yes, I can see what you mean, but I think it's inherent. There are certain things that are inherent in me, but there are certain things that I really need to work on. And certainly information. I mean, you know, today I'm interviewing artists uh, from the past and a lot of them, I don't know what they've done since their heyday, nor does the audience. But I have to go through and I have to listen to everything they've done, if possible. And I really do a lot of a lot of work. Um, so and I think that's about respect. And I think it's really important. I mean, everyone wants to be respected in some way. You know, you want to feel you have value in the world, don't you? And I think a lot of what I do with the artists is also give them value. But I mean it. You know what I mean? At the end of the interview, I will often say something which is heartfelt and it's meant. And it's sometimes, you know, sometimes I have to think about it when the end of the interview is coming. I don't work that out before. But when the interview is coming, I'm thinking about what do I want to say to this person? What do they mean to me? What do I feel is the right thing to say that I believe in? Um And, you know, I mean, I have had an occasion where nothing came up because it didn't feel right. So I just said, thank you. And that was it. But nearly always I will find something that I like about people because I think that's it doesn't have to be their work. It can be them, their personality, their achievements, how they impacted your life in some way. And and I think so much of what these people produce has impacted my life that for me, that's quite easy. And it's great to leave someone with, with value.
Yeah, for sure. I think it's it's very important in any kind of communication that you know you you kind of like have a, a positive beginning and a positive ending to the to the exchange. And, yeah. Uh, okay. I don't know about <laughs> any kind. I mean, it's sort of like I don't know. Well, well, in the I supermarket, mean, you look fat. Fuck off. You look. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't think it needs always to be positive. It can also <laughs> be earthy and truthful in in the yes. most hard way. Yes. Uh, yes. yes. Hey, let me ask you about like you you studied mathematics. Yeah, I know. How weird. <laughs> Um, actually, that's a weird one as well, because I went to a grammar school in England, which was, you know, the top 2% of the population went to a grammar school, you had to do, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and at that period, the only the top 3% went to university. So almost everyone who went to grammar school went to university. Um, but no one in my family had ever been to university. I mean, no one had higher education at all. Um, and so for me, it was a really odd idea to go to university. And then when it came up, I copied uh, the form of another guy in my class, whose name is Roger Howe, and I copied his form completely, everything. I mean, absolutely everything. And we both got an interview at Exeter University. And during, just prior to the interview, they, you know, talked to all of us who were there. And then they said, well, there are two of you here who have got exactly the same application form, exactly the same interests. I even copied his interests. I mean, nothing, nothing changed. <laughs> it's absolutely exactly. And want to study the same subject. And we both got in, which is really weird. So <laughs> that's how I ended up studying maths and physics. And I think university, certainly for me in that period of my life, um, was about growing up and seeing the world probably is similar today, although I think young people grow up a bit quicker. And I think at, at that period, it was about being away from home. I mean, an Exeter was a long, you know, five hours in the car from uh, my mum's, which was another important factor to, to have your own life um, away from your family, um, to have a life with people of your same age and to have that development process. You know, I mean, I went to university and and uh, I came out almost immediately. Well, I think I was, I must have been 17, 18 when I came out. And this is in, so this was like 1978, 1979. Um, so this is a completely different era. And um, my whole life changed. My interests changed. Uh, my social spheres changed, everything changed at, uh, at university. And I think, you know, those years were so important and impactful for me. And it wasn't about mathematics and physics. I was absolutely brilliant at mathematics and I was terrible at physics. Um, and when I left, I had never had an intention, any intention in the world of ever doing anything with it. Um, but I think in that period, and I think it's the same in Britain today, I do think it's a slight difference in Germany, but same in, in Britain today, that a university degree means you've got a university degree. It doesn't really mean that you have to go down the exact path of what you've done at university. Whereas I think in Germany, it's more structured in a way you make a decision early on and you move, you can change, but you move down a certain 
often move down a certain path for, for most of your life. In Britain, that was very different. So when I came out of university with a maths and physics degree, I don't think I, I just had a degree. You know, I didn't really talk about it in that way. And it wasn't really of interest. I mean, it did appeal. I remember it came up in the uh, interview with MTV because I think it probably seemed a bit odd that someone with a maths and physics degree was wanting to be on MTV. So, um, and I think that oddity part of it also played into that equation. But, you know, can I do maths and physics today? Uh -uh. I have no idea at all. I mean, that's gone. That's been blasted out by the Omen and Dorian Gray long ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but I find that like the things that I learned at uni, um, they are kind of like with me as sort of a um, well, mathematics is very frame, logical frame of frame of mind, you know, like somehow yeah. some of that what I learned. Well, I'm a very creative person, but I'm very structured, and that's mathematics. I really believe that's what mathematics gave me some sort of structure in my life. Um, and, and I think maybe that is what I've kept from it. Everything else is, uh, everything else has fallen by the wayside. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so this, this, um, discussion about fame, right? So from your experience, um, so what happens, what happens to people when they lose it? Well, I think what happens to most, and it's also most pop stars, is yeah. that they believe that all their problems, and I think this was me as well, I think it's a subconscious thing, but I think looking back, this is what I'm saying, um, that all your problems will be resolved by being famous. I mean, when you, on a simplistic, child childlike level, uh, people who are famous are smiling, happy, wealthy, and shagging. You know what I mean? It's like they are, um, they're just getting everything you want when you're a teenager. Do you know what I mean? It's like they're, they're, they are the uh, epitome of, of success in, in every area. And, and the truth is you go in with this emotional baggage um, that you haven't resolved, and you're then famous with this emotional baggage. So actually that emotional baggage you have is then in the spotlight and you still haven't resolved it. So it's actually worse. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the problem. It compounds all the problems that you had before that you haven't resolved. It compounds them and it doesn't make it easier. It makes it harder. Mm -hmm. Totally. You know, one of the um, scenes that I thought were like extremely sad was like comedians. Like when I would, when, you know, I haven't watched mainstream TV in 25 years, but I remember in the late nineties when you had all those comedy shows in German TV and RTL or whatever. And, and there were like these, these people that were playing the happy, successful, witty kind of person. But I knew, and I felt that maybe those are like the, the, the kind of like most depressed, sad people, badly paid. They get one, they get one they get a, a buyout and their stuff runs on you know all other networks like for the next 30 years or something like that i i i was feeling so so bad for that kind for that side of fame what i'm trying to say is that when it comes to the system 
it's not just the person getting famous, but it's also it used or used to be and still is the industry that is feeding this or that is creating the, this path that makes those people ill, right? Oh, absolutely. It's, I think it's an abuse. I think yes. it, and I think it's more abusive today. I mean, the music industry was definitely massively abusive. I think that is changing a bit. Uh, I think in the music industry, it's changed a bit. I, for me, I think television uh, has, and in certain aspects, is still um, abusive. I mean, I don't watch uh, mainstream TV either, not because of that. It's because it just doesn't interest me anymore. Yeah. Um, um, and, you know, I don't know. People talk about certain shows, and I have no idea what's going on. But I think, you know, nor do all my friends, you know, no one really watches TV in that way. And I don't think it's made for people like me in any case. Um, but yeah, I see what you mean. I think um, certainly comedians, because um, they used to present such a positive image, like you said, that there, there was something dark behind it. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about is the drive for success. And the drive from success comes from childhood wounds. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. And so I I look back, and I, this might sound really weird, but I've done so much therapy that I can speak completely openly about it. And for me, it's 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 not shocking, but for other people, it's sometimes really shocking. My father tried to kill my mother when she was pregnant with me. Um, he was having an affair. Um, she hid in the back of his car. He got her out and then he drove the car against her against the wall, but he missed. Um, and I mean, that's the story of his life, really <laughs> missing everything. And um, anyhow, so he didn't want to have a third child. I was the third son. He didn't want to have a third child. And I think, I don't know for sure, but I think my mother wanted to get pregnant to keep him. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my mother was from the... Uh, she was born in 24, so she's like the, the ones that experienced the war and um, had much more of a, of a mentality that when you get married, it is for life. Um, and that don't matter how unhappy you are, it's you're unhappy for life. And uh, my father had nothing to do with me when I was young or very little. And I only have my first memory, and I find this a bit tragic, really, but my only first memory that I have, and I know there are other events in there because I've seen photos of other ages, but my first memory is when I was 10 or 11, I worked for my, my father on a market store. Um, so he sold stuff on a market store. He was basically, his best friend, Dave the Thief, was a criminal and used to steal things. Um, and my father was the fence in English, which means that's the person who sold it. Um, so I come from a, sort of a very um, low-level criminal <laughs> family to my, in my father's side. And um, anyhow, so during the day, you know, I would help him sell things. And then in the evening, we'd pack the lorry. And then he said to me, I won't be long. I'm just going to go to the toilet, to a public toilet, which was behind these shops. And we're about 30 miles away from home. So I waited in the cab and I waited 10, 15 minutes. And like any child, I suddenly thought I need to go to the loo. So I locked up the cab and I went to go to find the toilet. 
and in the car park with my father, which I know today, but at that point I couldn't understand what they were doing, but he was having sex with this woman in a car outside the public toilet. So I remember turning back and bolting back. And when I, I didn't speak to him for a week. And when I got home, I sat on the sofa for a week. And this isn't, I'm not exaggerating. I literally refused to get off the sofa. And my mum had no idea and didn't know what to do with me. And of course, I couldn't tell my mum because I was, you know, a 10 or 11 year old. And I would be breaking my mother's heart by saying that I saw my father with a with another woman. Mm. And of course, my father didn't speak up, you know, so he's not going to admit to it either. So that first memory is quite a torturous um, memory. And I think those factors were the driving force for me, feeling that I wasn't loved from my father, were the driving force for me to eventually end up on, on TV. Now, I'm not saying and uh, that everybody on TV has a similar experience, but I am saying that there will be something in their background which has provided the drive in their life uh, to become famous because there is a reason why you want that. I mean, I did write a book on pop stars and the drives, the deep wounds in their life and what gave them the drive to be successful. And uh, that, that was all the major pop stars that I've interviewed. But I do think it applies to everyone. And everyone I've ever met and known well has got a deep, that's, that's well known, has got a deep emotional wound uh, in their childhood. And at one point, you have to deal with it. If you don't deal with it, you're never going to move on from it. It doesn't mean, you know, like, uh, I mean, Germany has a weird relationship with therapy because in Germany, you know, if you go to therapy, people think you're ill. But I think if you go to therapy, you're actually um, probably more advanced yes. because you understand yourself. And I think that actually everyone uh, can have a benefit from from therapy. And for me, it's, you know, over the years, it's been an, uh, an amazing, uh, and I hate that word journey, but it is a sort of journey um, <laughs> to act of self-discovery and also about acceptance. You know, now I look back and I say, yeah, my, okay, my, you know, a lot of men are shits. You know, I can be a shit sometimes in a relationship. And, you know, and I look back and I see it slightly differently. And I do feel that my father did love me in some way. Uh, mm -hmm. But I've got these highlighted events that have covered that in some way. So I've sort of, in a lot of ways, I've, I've, made peace with my past on uh, to that extent and i think those things are, are really important in life and i don't know i mean i looked after my mother until her death um which was about five years ago and i became the main carer and spent well it was 10 years of going backwards and forwards but the last three years almost permanently when she got lung cancer and my relationship with her was so perfect by the end because we actually talked about everything and and i mean absolutely everything and it was an amazing experience and at the end the night before she died um she gave this sort of long speech about what she wanted for me for my life i'd got a hospital bed in the front room in her front room and my bed next to hers for the last two weeks and um and it was really tough i mean i can't tell you how tough that is but people know it 
And um, anyhow, she told me what she wanted for my life. And her first sentence was, and this is a 93-year-old, she said, I want you to meet a man who is as kind to you as you have been to me. And then she started talking about, from a future perspective, what my life was going to be. And it was the most amazing thing that I've ever experienced. And it was a gift, you know, and I think it was probably the most wonderful gift I will ever have in my life. Um, and although five years on, I have moved on, you know, in, in to the extent, you know, my mother said to me right at the end, she went, and now I want you to forget about me, never think about me and go on with your own life, which, of course, at that time was the most painful thing to hear. But five years down the line, I I visited her, her grave about a few weeks ago, and I said goodbye, and that's it. I won't go back there. That is it. I have pictures of her with me um, on the wall. Um, but for me, um, that part of my life is over. It's not that I'm going to forget my mum, but it, it's I'm not going to wallow or try and go into that area. But what she left with me was the most positive feeling that you can ever have and I think the most positive thing a parent can give a child, which is a, a vision uh, that will always stay with them. And if I ever feel down, that comes up and it's like, oh, wow, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> it's quite a weird, weird thing. So I have this, you know, weird relationship with my parents. But my mum rectified also the relationship with my father in a lot of ways because I learned about my father from her. And I learned so much about their relationship. And it takes two to tango. You know, my mum wasn't an easy person to live with either. You know, mm -hmm. it's not, it's always like that in, in a relationship. You know, like we always blame the other person. But we're also part of the reason when things don't work out. Wow, thanks for sharing that. And were your um, your brothers there? Yeah, they were there um, on the last days. I don't have a particularly close relationship with my brothers. Um, but yes, they were there in uh, uh, the last days. And um, they had a different relationship to my mum as well. And I know that um, I told them the day after that mum was obviously going to die that day um, because she'd said her goodbyes. And I said to them, you know, if you want to say anything to her, you should go in now because she she's conscious at the moment, but she she actually did go unconscious. So um, she's conscious at the moment. And if you, you know, want to communicate with her, you've got to do it now. And uh, they both went in and they came out into the kitchen. I hope they don't hear this. They won't like it. But anyway, they came out into the kitchen and I said to them, so what did she say? And they both said, she said, look after Steve. <laughs> because I'd no, but I actually was very pleased because I mm -hmm. permitted myself to look after her, mm -hmm. uh, and they didn't do a lot, and they will admit that, you know. And mm -hmm. I did so much; I did everything. And the thing is, in the end, if she'd said the same to them as she said to me, it would have been meaningless. Then, do you know what I mean? So, in a way, I was happy because I felt like, okay, that that means that what she said to me, and people don't lie at the end of their life. I mean, I had a similar, you know, the weird thing is, and that's, I didn't believe my father. I, I visited my father. He was in a hospital and he was on his deathbed. He died a week later than when I last saw him. And um, I said to him, Dad, I love you. And it was the weirdest experience ever because I realized 
I couldn't remember that I'd ever said that. Obviously, I when I was a child, I did, I'm sure. But I said, Dad, I love you. And he said, I love you too. I always have. Mm-hmm. And well, that was the, it was a big moment for me. But a day later, I thought, pile of shit. <laughs> you know, I brushed it off because I thought, yeah, sure. But you didn't do anything, did you? You didn't really mm-hmm. make any effort. Um, mm-hmm. And you know how, you know, I mean, in a certain way, that is true. You need to make effort to show things to people. You can't just say words. But on someone's deathbed, I don't believe they lie. Because at that moment of death, there is no reason to say anything but the truth. There really isn't. And um, and now I realize that he meant it. So it's a, it's a you know a different journey since since those times. Mm-hmm. And so you you think you have sort of completed the grieving over your mm. mother, and oh yeah, well dad didn't take long. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't know him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I know this sounds really weird, but even when my mum phoned me up and said your dad's dying, he's got lung cancer. Um, I really felt like she told me that the neighbor down the street is dying. It sort of didn't hit me at all. Um, and, uh, but with mum, it was very, very painful. And the first year I sort of lost it in the first year or year and a half. Um, completely. I mean, I was in a complete state to be honest. Um, and, People do not understand you. You know what I mean? It's very difficult for people who have an experience and haven't experienced a very, very close relationship and the loss of someone, um, how that grief can affect you so massively for such a uh, a long, well, I say a long period, but one or two years is, is for everyone, I think. Mm-hmm. But it affected me really, really dramatically. And, um, and then I eventually came out of it and now have i feel that it is just part of my life that i've put aside and it's a little bit like mtv it's an era that is gone mm-hmm. and um i don't disrespect it in any way but it's an era that ended a long time ago um and i'm okay with it and i'm proud of certain things that i achieved you know back then but at the same time steve blame isn't steve blame today you know it's a completely i feel it's a completely different person yeah yeah so um what happened between say like 97 and 2005 or something like so 2005 you said you did the uh the screenwriting course or whatever it was right yeah oh that was the big hole because i came to germany to work for viva Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I won't talk too much about that because I had a horrible time. And um, after Viva, when I was fired and I was paid off, the first thing I did was spend 200,000 on partying in six months, <laughs> 200,000 Deutschmarks at that time, mm-hmm. uh, going absolutely apeshit. But I think for me, it was dirty money. I mean, I, I hated that period of my life and it was a very awful period of my life, I feel. Um, and certain things happened to me And the reason I don't want to talk about it is things happened to me that would Mm -hmm. get me into huge legal problems because it Mm -hmm. would be accusations uh, against people. So Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, and I don't want to talk about it without saying those things. So for me, 
I feel like I don't want to talk about, oh, yeah, I, I interviewed so-and-so and that was lovely, when actually some absolutely horrendous things went on. Eight pages of my biography were taken out by the lawyer. And so I can't go there. You know, there's no point going there. And it's, it's, it's gone. It's in the past. And, um, but when I, when I left, um, Viva or, you know, when it was over and, um, I lost my house in London, I blew all this money. And I think in essence, and I wasn't, I've never been an addict, but like an addict, I needed to hit the ground completely before I could stand up again. Mm -hmm. And I look back upon that period. I mean, it's a very dark period. I look back upon that period. There were, there were nice parts in it as well. But it was a dark period where I was battling my demons so much. Um, and I'd lost my self-worth completely. It had been, it'd been ripped apart. Um, and I felt I had no value at all. And I remember that at that period, obviously, I was still well-known. So I'd walk down the street and of course I'd be Mr. MTV in some way. And, but for me, it was like, I, I'm not, I don't want to be that, you know, I don't want to be remembered for this because it's something I'm, I'm, I'm not anymore, but I wasn't over it. And it was, it was painful. That whole period was very, very painful. Um, but, and this is the weirdest thing. I always thought that would be like a black hole in my life. I would never, ever, get anything out of and because i've become a writer uh a screenwriter i have so much fodder from the darkest period in my life mm -hmm. and going into that period that i now look back and go oh, it's the best period of my life that was fantastic and it was you know it's sort of nuts but it mm -hmm. but it's where i get everything from you know because i've had experiences um, that not many people have had. You know, I've had experiences of of fame, you know, on a certain level, but I've had experience of being, you know, successful of being, you know, uh, uh, a TV presenter and being recognisable all around Europe. Um, I've had the experiences of interviewing incredibly famous people and heroes and sometimes irritating people. Uh, but basically, I've had experience of, of, of interviewing people that people don't get a chance to meet or interview. And um, I've had a very dark period where the carpet was pulled from under my legs and I was on the ground and I had felt like I had no hope. And um, a period, a not very long period, but a period where I really did contemplate suicide. Um, and it's a very dark period, um, but it's a period I look back on. And as I said, now I just think, oh, yeah, that's, you know, like you fictionalize it in some way and change it in some way. But that is the root of something that I'm writing. And, you know, there's a lot of that period in something that I've written that no one's taken up yet, but it's really quite entertaining. And it's the dark side um, of fame. And... I don't think many people can write that because there's not many people who have experienced it. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, you know, that period was a, a really valuable period. And then it, my father died. And uh, I mean, I had no money for years. For 10 years, I had nothing. I lived on nothing. I mean, it's really horrendous in that way. Um, and literally friends would feed me, you know, 
um, I'd got myself into such a state uh, and also a state of inaction, you know, where I found it really difficult to get myself together to do anything. And then after my father died, um, I mean, it's a very small amount that I got. Uh, he was also broke. So I got like £3,000. Uh, but I used that £3,000 to get to university again. And and that restarted my life. And at university, I mean, you know, the kindness of strangers. You know, people talk about this this idea that sometimes, you know, people you don't know can be so kind to you and offer you an olive branch or offer you something which um, gets you to the next stage of your life. There are kind people out there. And at university, this guy, uh, Charles, who was the oldest person on the course, I was 46 back then and he was 56. Um, every day at university, he used to say to me, okay, we're going to the bar and we go to the bar and he'd get me uh, a glass of wine and a sandwich. And if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have eaten. <laughs> and he used to say, don't say anything. I don't want any thanks. I will do it every day. Don't say anything. And it was such a, you know, and he's not a wealthy man. Do you know what mm. I mean? Mm. Okay, I mean, a wine and a sandwich don't cost much, but, you know, people don't do that. And and it was such a kind gesture. And um, my aunt, who was alive at that time, um, she would give me 25 quid a week. Um, and that would pay for my train fare to Norwich and back from mm. where I was at that period. And actually, what I did is I would hide in the toilet, which is a, an old trick in England. If you hide in the toilet and lock the toilet door, mm. and then I wouldn't pay the fare. I mean, I was a 46-year-old man mm -hmm. who couldn't pay the fare. But it was like, I'm either going to do this. I'm going to go to university. I'm going to do this. I didn't pay for my halls of residence. I didn't pay for the course. It took me five years after that to pay it back. Mm -hmm. um but it was the best thing i ever did because it again opened my world up again and it gave me the confidence again to say okay now this is a new phase of my life and i can move on again i think it's a it's fascinating how those stages come up and you feel blocked and you feel like your life isn't going to change and then suddenly the smallest trigger changes it seems to me like there are a lot of interlocking stories going on there also um with like you're saying like the death of your father giving you that money to then decide to go do that course and things like that and when, when did the thought of psychotherapy came oh well I, I i went to well the <laughs> the first psychotherapist i went to was in uh when i was 28 Mm -hmm. So I hadn't been at MTV very long, um, but I don't think she was very good. And uh, so, I mean, I've, I've been to a lot since then, um, but I've also had in the last two and a half years, I've had trauma therapy, which has been, to be honest, the best experience I've ever had in my life. It's been amazing. Um, and the weird thing is that I'm, I don't know it's not just about dealing with the demons. I've gone through everything in my life. I'd gone, I knew exactly what had gone on in my life. I knew all the facts and everything, but I don't think I'd got to the point of acceptance and where I could move on with all of it. 
And this trauma therapy has really done that. And it's done even more than that because I feel it's changed my whole attitude of my future, of what I can achieve and what I can get out of my life and uh, made me into a more forward-looking person. And it's changing. This sounds weird, but it's changed me physically. You know, I since I started that therapy, I I... I did karate for nine months, but I fell in love with the karate trainer, so that ended. <laughs> Although we're best friends now, so and uh, but I'm not going back. <laughs> and um, I've started boxing. Mm-hmm. I go to boxing once or twice a week, and uh, mm-hmm. and it's and I love it. I absolutely love it. And my body has changed again. This shirt. The only reason I'm wearing this shirt is that this morning I looked at that shirt. I. 15 years ago, um, a friend of mine bought this for me for my birthday, and I've never been able to wear it. And today I got into it. So that (laughs) shows you how much my body is is changing. And I haven't, you know, I mean, I've realized it. And people tell me that I'm looking, you know, better because I'm definitely thinner than I was and um, and physically stronger. And um, it's just that this therapy has changed my whole perspective and instead of winding down, you know, I'm 64, but I feel, and it's weird to say, I know physically I'm not, but I feel like I'm in my 30s with the power of someone in their 30s looking forward to their life from that perspective and enjoying everything I do. You know, I only do things I want to do. I mean, that's and that makes me a little bit difficult sometimes because I just decide okay, I love writing and it fulfills me and I, I do that. I love interviewing people. It fulfills me and do that. And you know, I'm a little bit difficult when it comes to being interviewed because I don't really <laughs> want to turn up, but then I enjoy it. So it's okay. Um, but it's, you know, I end up, I don't do anything that I don't want to do. And I enjoy everything that I do do. And that for me is an amazing life to be in. And no, obviously I'm not wealthy. Obviously, you know, I have uh, issues about, you know, how like paying the rent or uh, how to live. I mean, not at the moment, but it's like, it's not like I'm okay for life. Do you know what I mean? I'm not set up in that sense. But to be honest, I'd rather be in my position than be wealthy in a position where you're unhappy and you don't really have a perspective and you don't do anything you want to do. I do everything I want to do. Wonderful. Wonderful. Is there any, have you ever, I mean, I, I know this word, this word artist, right. Is kind of like a, is a difficult one or even art, you know, it's very difficult, but have you ever, considered yourself as following the path of an artist is that what you're doing maybe nowadays oh i think i always was you know i always Mm -hmm. was and Mm -hmm. i think certainly after um my time at viva i think that was the realization for me was that i on one side i had this freedom to try and be creative and do what i wanted to do but I didn't have the talent or the know-how how to get there. Um, I'd always worked in a structure. 
you know, and the MTV structure worked for me and the Viva structure didn't work for me. So um, if I was supported by a structure, I could be successful. And mm -hmm. so for me, it was about finding a route through in terms of finding something I wanted to do. And this was, you know, and to do that in midlife is a very different thing to do it when you're 20. Um, so, yeah, I... I am, in essence, an artist because I have that sort of life. And certainly a screenwriter, you know, I mean, it is an art. It's, uh, I think interviewing is an art. Mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, not everyone can interview. You know, you mm -hmm. see so many bad interviews. Um, and I think there is a certain talent involved in getting information out of people and opening them up and, and making it work. Um, and you know that as well as I know that. And so that's, that is a skill and a talent and you're an artist because of your music and, and, and performing, and you know what that gives you and you know why you do it. You know, there is, there is something, uh, not just therapeutic, but in, especially in writing, you're dealing all the time with working through your demons until you actually get to know and get to like your demons, which is really interesting. Um, and, and I think any true artist is dealing with that side to themselves. And if they're not, I'm not sure what they're actually achieving um, is art. Mm -hmm. if for me, really, if, if you're interested in this, it's, it's very much about like, like if I were to stop what I'm doing, I'm wondering who who else is going to do it, and there's nobody else who's going to do this. So that's why I feel a responsibility to sort of like follow my path or vision, for lack of a better word, you know. Well, also I, you've 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 actually said it without saying it. There, you're doing it for you. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like you don't create yeah. something for someone else. It might be the goal. Might be this is going to be really successful and I'm going to earn money out of it and whatever. But actually you can't think like that to achieve something. You have to do it because it's about you and it's about something within you that needs to be expressed. And if you can hone in on that, I think then you're making something that is truly of value. And that's why there's such a lot of good and bad stuff out there. You know, there's bad stuff out there as well. Um, because people are looking at a formula. Mm -hmm. They're looking at creating something. They're thinking, you know, these, these, uh, writing teams, you know, mm -hmm. I, you know, I know someone who's in a writing team and she's very talented, but I always feel that a writing team is sitting there with a brief. So write a piece of music for X big pop star, um, that fits what she or he does. Um, to, you know, to release on their new album. And so even from that premise, you've taken away the art from what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and this is really difficult for me because that's why at the moment I'm mainly pitching my stuff to America because I write a TV pilot or a screenplay, a film screenplay, a feature, um, first because I have to own it in the sense that it has to come from here 
and it has to be all mine and i really have to understand it inside and out and in uh in germany if you go to a a, a german company they basically want to work with the seed of an idea and accompany you which means that they want to tell you what their vision is mm -hmm. but i just want to do my vision because that's important to me if i could work by someone giving me that brief and saying okay uh, actor x wants a vehicle for this this and this um and then you know and we're looking at uh, an action film with that this and this happens um i couldn't do it because it's already taken away what i get out of it <laughs> mm -hmm. you know it has yeah. to come yeah. from within me um and i think there are some people that can work like that and good on them you know because they they earn regular money and there's some people that can't and mm. that's just the way it is you can't change your inner core it's just how you are you know but from my experience a lot of people do neglect their inner core and and sort of like the the cliche of the midlife crisis being about like you know having a new partner or a big car or whatever I think event in the end, it really is about what we're talking about, about people sort of discovering their creativity uh, in some way, you know? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think what you said is also something about life that if you don't, when I went to the therapist this time, she mm -hmm. said to me, you know, why are you here? This is the classic question that a therapist will ask you immediately. And I said, because I want the rest of my life to be happy and fulfilled and uh if i meet the right partner with the right partner mm -hmm. and that's what i want mm -hmm. and she said oh my god that's you know that's brilliant and and the thing is i think if you deal with your life as you're going along if you don't all these problems all these wounds and problems from your past and this fits in with what you said about um uh, creativity and where it must come from your inner core and if you don't deal with all those things, it's going to come back to hit you in later life. You're going to have all these problems later in life. It's all going to come up. But I tell you, it's going to come up for everyone watching, but I'm going to die happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Everyone's going to die happy. We're all going to die at the same fucking time, probably. <laughs> this this sounds like a happy ending. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> like like Sean Dixon, Hi-Fi Sean. I love that that album. Hi-Fi Sean and David McAlman. I don't know. Do you remember that track, Yes, from Bernard Butler and um, David McAlman in the 90s? Most beautiful track, yeah, and he's got yeah. the most beautiful voice. And these yeah. two guys uh, hooked up to make an album and it's called happy ending and i said <laughs> i said so have you had your happy ending he's <laughs> laughing he's laughing he said I, when we named it we didn't realize that there was another version to the happy ending really? i'll tell you what a happy ending is okay i'm going to leave you with with one story then because it says it's come to the end boxing now i mm -hmm. absolutely adore boxing but boxing Oh God, can I go boxing after I say this? Boxing is like a gay porno movie without a happy ending because <laughs> after 10 minutes, the trainer whips his top off. All these young guys take their top off and there's me punching the bag, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I just feel like, well, where have I landed? It's just very weird. <laughs> Maybe that's completely 
tasteless story there. But no, anyhow, it's, that's a happy it's, ending. It's, it's just it's just happy, but no ending. You know, that's <laughs> exactly. Hey, thank you so much, Steve. I think this yeah. was just so incredibly like self-contained, and like we've come full circle. And I guess no, it was great to talk to you. This, that's wonderful. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, but I think after the, there's nothing that comes after a happy ending, is there? <laughs> a, a well, sleep. well, asleep. <laughs> well, what's the word? Refractory period or something? Or whatever. Yeah. Okay. I don't think we should go there. <laughs> All right. No. Very, very nice to meet you. And yeah, um, and you. And thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay.